morning. It's so good to be together. Uh, can we just do this for a second? Because every morning, I just am so amazed by our band. And this, can we give them a hand again? They're just so good. We're so lucky. So, so good. And they have a couple more songs that are just amazing. You're going to love them. And um, I just can't imagine when Sanai turns 15, how good she's going to be. <laughs> crazy. She told me again this morning, I thought she was 15. She goes, I'm only 14. Jeez, unbelievable. So um, this time of year is the Academy Awards, and uh, they were just a couple weeks ago. And I only pay attention to the Oscars because sometimes it gives me ideas of films that uh, maybe I should have seen that I missed or something like that. And several years ago, this film, Dunkirk, came out, and it had received a lot of attention for the Oscars. And um, but I did not need the Academy Awards to uh, let me know that I need to go see this film because the Battle of Dunkirk is one of my favorite stories to tell in my U.S. history class. And I had been telling it, gosh, um, when this film came out, I had been telling it for 20 years in my U.S. history class. And so for decades, in fact, I told my students that someday they're going to make a movie about this. And my colleagues, all, uh, in 2017, they did make a movie about it, and it's incredible. Um, my colleagues always knew when uh, I was telling the Dunkirk story because I would have kids walking out of my class kind of choked up, and I would go out in the hallway, and I'd have tears. And they're like, Dunkirk Day? Yeah, it's Dunkirk Day. <laughs> Anyways, there are so many parallels. The reason I love this story is because there's so many parallels between Dunkirk and what we refer to when we're together as the gospel of grace, this idea the reality, capital R, that God is good and that he's good for us, that he's on our side and that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can not only know this to be true, but we can trust it. And it's living with that trust changes everything about life, changes what life is for, it changes, sometimes we talk about the direction of life, and it certainly can change us from the inside out. Now, even though this film leaves out the very best part of the story, I'd encourage you to see it because it brings out so many of these themes. But for those who may not be familiar, let me just give you a, a brief overview of Dunkirk. Um, this is very early in World War II, okay? Not even, I, I don't even think a year into World War II. And 400,000 British and French soldiers were suddenly surrounded by the Nazis in this um, French town, French coastal town of Dunkirk. You can see it right there on the map. It's just across the English Channel or the Straits of Dover, really. And they were literally stuck on the beach, stranded, and totally surrounded, their backs to the Straits of Dover. And the Germans paused their advance on this massive army that was completely helpless, just long enough to drop thousands of these leaflets. And, they, and you saw that in the, in the trailer. They, this is the, a literal picture, an actual picture of the actual leaflets that they dropped. And it said basically, it was telling all these allied troops stuck on this beach that you, it's only if you surrender will you survive. That's it. And they basically knew it was true. And then the Germans continue to drop bombs and strafe the beaches with machine gun fire. And the film does a great job of depicting what happens next. Isolated by the enemy, it seemed as if they were absolutely doomed. And, and the problem was not that the British didn't have enough ships to get them off those beaches. Of course they did. You know, England's navy is famous. 
But the soldiers were still stuck there because Dunkirk isn't a port. So the British naval ships were too big to get close enough to shore so they couldn't rescue the soldiers. And so when the, the, this British general you see in this uh, trailer says you can almost see it, they were literally staring at the ships that could get them to home. They could see them. They just couldn't get to them. So in desperation, the English military issued an urgent call to all the citizens of England. If you have any kind of boat, like a sailboat, a fishing boat, a yacht, a ferry, anything, we need you. And an incredible thing happened. In the middle of World War II, with this battle raging, almost a thousand boats, almost a thousand boats manned by private citizens crossed the Straits of Dover under heavy fire, risking their lives to rescue the soldiers. I was talking about this story with my friend, and he said something um, that just struck me so powerfully. He said, you know, in life, sometimes you need a small boat. It reminds me so much of what we've been talking about the last month, the way of Jesus, the practices, the intentional ways that Jesus lived his life. And, and for sure, one of the most important ways of Jesus is depicted in this story of Dunkirk. Now, we live in a world that will tell us that bigger is always better. But sometimes when you're stuck and stranded and surrounded by life, you need a small boat, not a crowd, but a community, willing to do whatever is necessary to come and get you and rescue you. I know I've been there. I'm sure you've been there. We've discovered a few things this last month about the ways of Jesus, but one I think that is really easy to miss is that Jesus purposely lived in community. He practiced community. Now, this shouldn't really be all that surprising because the Bible teaches us that God is a community. The theological term is actually Trinity, and it's a fancy term, but Jesus basically presents to the world a God unlike any other God in ancient religion or modern religion who is all at once Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. God as a triune, three-in-one, divine community. Now, the implications for this reality are so profound, so beautiful, so fundamental to the life uh, and the, to, the, to our life and to the gospel of grace that we could honestly talk about this every Sunday for a year, and I'm not exaggerating. That's how many implications flow out of this reality that Jesus presented to the world a triune God. A friend asked me one time, we were out on Lake Michigan, kayaking actually, and a friend of mine was here from California, he was visiting me, and he said, uh, this was Keith, and Keith said, Mike, if you were to write a book, what would chapter one be about? And it, it was not something that I had ever thought about, but without hesitation, I said, it'd be about the Trinity. It would be about the Trinity, because it all begins with this. God being a Trinity means that before the creation of the world, there was such a thing as love. Before the creation of the world, there was such a thing as a loving community. It means that community is the root 
of reality, and it is the engine of existence. And that is so important for us to try to grasp, especially if we're going to try to live lives that trust in the goodness of God. Because if God isn't a community, if love in a community didn't exist before the creation of the world, then he created us to get something from us. But that's not the world, that, and that's not the God that Jesus presents to us in the, in the Bible. See, here's the thing. What motivated God to create was not to get something from us. He already had love. He was loved and loved before the creation of the world. He had community. He wasn't lonely. He didn't create us to get something from us. He created us to give something to us. And that changes everything when you have that understanding of God. And that's why the Trinity is the beginning of everything. So if he created us to give something to us, what was it? Well, it was himself and it was each other. That's what he created to give us. And in other words, we were made by community for community. The entire point and purpose, the source and the goal of existence is community, and it is. Now, this is a hard word for some, for introverts like me, I'm always like, how much community? Like, how often? Like, can we, let's not overdo this, right? And my wife's like, yay, yippee, right? She, I'm an introvert, she's an explosionvert. And so, um, this means different things to different people, but introverts don't panic, okay? But this is why God says in the very first pages of the Bible, it's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. We are created in the image of God to embrace, enjoy, and extend community and belonging. And people ask me, why this? Why do you guys harp on belonging so much? The storyline, why are you always talking about belonging before believing or no matter what you believe? It's because community is the root of reality. It's the engine of existence. Everything begins with belonging. So the way we've put this in the past, another way we put it in the past is that the abundant life that Jesus promises us is a team sport. Life is a team sport. Now, this is why the practice, the way, the discipline of living in community purposely and purposefully is critical for our transformation and for human flourishing, which is what we've been talking about for five weeks now in the ways of Jesus. You know, several years ago, social scientists started talking about these rare places on earth that where people, they were discovering like people are living way longer in these places and they're reporting much higher levels of happiness. And they, they termed these areas blue zones. And this is a map, I think of five of them. I think they now discovered like seven or nine of them where it's just like they stick out from the surrounding culture from the surrounding society. There's these pockets of people in these blue zones. They're living longer lives and happier lives. And, and of course, the question that is like, how did this happen? Is it their diet? Is it the climate, the water? Are they like super rich? Is it great healthcare, education, exercise? And here's what they found. Certainly some of these places have some of those characteristics. But here's the thing. None of them have all of them. For instance, many blue zones are actually quite poor economically, believe it or not. Some have really high education rates, others don't. 
Some, they eat lots of seafood. In other places, they eat almost none. But when they compare blue zone to blue zone, and they ask, what's the overlap? What's the, is there, what is in common? There's only one variable that comes up in every single one. Community. In blue zones, people place a very high value on living life together, on belonging. Life in a blue zone is a team sport. It just is. That's the one thread that they could pull through every single blue zone. No one feels stuck, stranded, or surrounded in these blue zones because everyone is in a small boat. Everyone has their small boat. Now, I've mentioned this before, probably too often, that I, I don't like traveling. I don't mind being other places. I just don't like to get there, you know? Like if I could transport like Star Trek, I would be a world traveler. But for me, it's the, the process of traveling. I just cannot handle it. And there's so many reasons why, but w one is that final instruction, you know, when you're on the plane, and it starts to back away from the, the gate, and then this dreaded uh, instruction. At this time, make sure your seat backs are, you know, setting up straight so they're super uncomfortable, you know, and make sure you can feel the nails in your knees as you crouch up and don't get to move, and, you know, also turn off your phones. And I just cringe every time. No place for a book. I can't eat a snack. I'm sitting up perfectly straight, which I never do except on a plane. And it's this skinny, uncomfortable seat. You, you're sharing a, like a, you know, an armrest this wide with somebody you don't know or even worse, wants to get to know you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right? Oh, my word. I, I, I know I've told this story, but one of my favorite stories is I, someone was trying to do that one time. And I'm like, oh, please don't bother me. I'm trying to write a talk about God's grace. Just don't. <laughs> Can you just please? I'm busy here, right? <laughs> I know. And all of that for only hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars. It's like, yippee, so much fun. Lisa is just giddy when she gets on a plane. I'm not kidding. I know you're going to think I'm exaggerating. We get postcards from people she's met on planes. No joke. She has gotten rides from the airport from people she met on the plane. It's terrible. It's awful. I just want to put on like... That's when I want to put those virtual reality glasses on and earmuffs and like, Lisa, you run for president of the plane. I will just disappear. <laughs> so anyways, like, give me my basement any day of the week. I do not like traveling. But when you land and you finally get to turn your cell phone back on, there's that thing your phone does. It says, searching for connection. Searching for connection. It is a metaphor for the human condition. It really is. Because think about this. Until that phone connects, nothing happens. This amazing device, disconnected, is basically useless. Without a connection, it can't do what it was designed to do. But when it does, when it connects, miracles occur. Everything comes alive. Almost anything is possible. And this is us. That's how we work, too. We are all searching for connection for belonging, a community, for our small boat. And when we have that, life comes alive. Now, there are so many places in the Bible 
that talk about this. I mean, I, I, there's just too many to even mention. But one that we're going to look at here real quickly this morning comes from a letter um, entitled Hebrews. And it's clear in this book that, or in this letter, that the first followers of Jesus understood the need to practice community. And this is what the Bible says. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, I know that I read that and had a lot of questions like, what in the world is a sinful, unbelieving heart? We could and have and will devote entire gatherings to a question like this. But for now, let's just say that a sinful heart is one that is full of, as our dear departed friend John Williams used to say, self-inflicted nonsense. It might be the best summary, I think, of what sin is I've ever heard. Self-inflicted nonsense. And here's why. Primarily because a sinful, unbelieving heart is unbelieving. In other words, it doesn't trust in the goodness of God. It doesn't trust in the goodness of God. Now, who would ever do that, right? Like, who would turn away, walk away from God? What kind of person would know why we're here? You know, what life is for? How to live that out and turn away? Who would do such a thing? I would, I do, I have, I will today. It is just a state of heart for most people. I'll speak for myself, at least for me. So that's just how we're put together. And that's another talk for another day as well. But life, and why life is like this, we've talked about before, we'll talk about again, but, but life itself just so often leaves us stuck, stranded, and surrounded. We all know that feeling. We're like, well, there's no way out, no way forward. Now think about it. If you're trying to get in shape or save money or finish school, secure a promotion, no matter what your goal may be, a vibrant marriage, well-adjusted kids, eating right, exercise, sticking to a budget, in every area of life, we, what we want is like right there. It's like those ships on the horizon. It's like... We can see it. We know what we need to survive, though, to thrive. We, need, we know we need to do something, but we just can't get there from here. So what's the intentional effort that we have to make? Well, this passage, I think, from Hebrews is insisting that what we need first and primarily isn't to get from here to there, it's to be with the people that can help us get there. We need a small boat. The effort that we must make begins with community. You see, life left to its own devices will leave us stuck and stranded and surrounded sooner or later and more often than not. And in that place, our hearts will quickly devolve into all kinds of self-inflicted nonsense. And we will begin to distrust in the goodness of God. We need a small boat. A simple thought. Monkeys that are known to have a developed social life organize in small groups of several dozen members. The size of each of these groups is limited 
in order for them to function, all members of the group need to know each other well. The average size of the group changes from 20 to 50 members. When the number of monkeys in a group passes a certain threshold, a social order crumbles, and the group tends to split into two separate groups. A similar situation can be found amongst humans as well. The invention of language and gossip has helped to shape larger and more stable groups. Sociological research indicates that the maximum natural size of a group of humans is roughly 150 members. Most humans are just incapable of intimately knowing more than 150 people, so even today, the threshold of human organization is around the number of 150 members. Man is a social creature, and the feeling of loneliness can drive him mad. Yet the Western and modern world sanctions individuality. The individual is measured by personal achievements, such as having a career, wealth, a self-image, and consumerism. In this course of action, many people lose their social and familial connections in favor of a self-actualization ideal. As the social fabric in the Western world weakens, it is not surprising that more and more people define themselves as lonely, and thus, loneliness has become the most common ailment of the modern world. I think by now, with all of the studies on, um, you know, coming out about social media and things like that, we know this is true. This isn't a surprise to us. You know, somebody asked me after the pandemic, especially, how is Storyline doing and is it growing? And it's a really interesting question because the church in America generally is not doing well at all. In fact, I think we, the, the cat's out of the bag. It's getting much, much smaller. But I told this person that for us, the emphasis is on, it is on growth, but it's not on growing the church. It's on growing people. And those are two different things. We're not aimed at growing in number, although that would be great. We're aimed at growing each other. And that takes a small boat. It really does. You know, the former Surgeon General of the United States is a man named uh, Vivek Murthy. Uh, Mur yeah, Murthy. He was asked what the biggest disease in America today is. And this is what he said. It's not cancer. It's not heart disease. It's isolation. It's the pronounced isolation that so many people are experiencing that is the great pathology of our lives today. We are the most technologically connected generation in human history and yet feel more isolated than ever. The connections that matter most and are in the most short supply today are the human to human ones. We are, all of us, surrounded by life. Now some days that doesn't bother us, but I think we all know that sooner or later when we realize that, when we look up from our spot on the beach and we realize we're stuck, stranded, and surrounded, and home is beyond where we can get to on our own, it's a problem. And, and even though we live in this age where everything is so connected online, and maybe even because of, the, of this connection online, life seems to be more isolating than it ever has been. And the way forward is right here in this passage, in the way of Jesus in the practice, the intentional way of living, of community. Now notice this is an invitation for everyone. It says, brothers and sisters, see to it. It's saying, be intentional. Do whatever is necessary to make sure that no one is stuck or stranded because it will do a number on their heart. Last week, 
I received a really wonderful email from someone who's experiencing a significant health issue, and he was responding to the, the talk that we did last week on the practice of prayer. But I want you to see how it, he just moves from prayer into what we're talking about this morning. Listen to how he, gets, how he describes what is getting him through this difficult time. I am in uncharted waters now because I've always been the person who takes care of everything around me and prays for others. Now I'm the one cared for and prayed for. I must tell you that I can sense and feel this prayer and it is consoling and lifting my spirits. It is so powerful that it encourages me to lift up others regularly because God hears and answers by sending his spirit to all who ask. I am so blessed, so grateful, so thankful for my wife, my wonderful family, friends, and my fellow soldiers at Storyline. What a support system. Everyone's prayer makes me float on air and makes my burden light. Oh, that is so perfect. It, it could only been better for you to said float on water, and that would have gone better for the small boat analogy this morning, right? <laughs> but you can tell that he is in a small boat. He has a small boat, and it's making all the difference in, in his life. For life to live like this, it has to be a team effort, and it has to be intentional. Because here's the thing, unlike Dunkirk, where it's obvious that they were surrounded, stranded, stuck, like the enemy had them cornered, in real life, it's not always obvious for us, maybe to ourselves, but it's certainly not obvious to other people when we feel that way, because no one's dropping leaflets from the sky. When we get stuck and we begin to distrust the goodness of God, if we are isolated, we will surrender. We will. We need a small boat because only people close enough to us, traveling throughout life with us, can see and can sense when we're stuck. We need a small boat where we know we are wanted, needed, and loved. <laughs> what you call true love, true love, true love, true love. Mm -hmm. 
working late Cause she never finished school She ain't a fool She just didn't like it But he don't mind She's his everything Anything for you Every time she tries to fight But she knows he's right She just didn't like to Everything Everything Anything for you That's what you call True love, true love, true love, true love It's what you call true love, true love, true love, true love. It's what you call true love, true love, true love, true love. Matt Smith, so good. He is older than 14, but it was really good, man. Loved it. Hey, one sociologist put it like this. I love this line. We are all searching for true love, to be seen, heard, and valued. You know, I know in my life, the people who contact me because they're stuck, stranded, and surrounded have one thing in common. It's always this common thread. They feel alone. They feel isolated. They maybe can smile in a crowd, but inside it's self-inflicted nonsense and distrust. But here's the thing. I have yet to meet with someone who says, you know what, Mike, I have amazing support, 
all the people in my life, they know my story. I'm not keeping any secrets. I feel safe to ask my questions. I can air my doubts. I have people praying for me and checking in on me. I know that I'm seen, heard, and valued. I feel wanted, needed, and loved. And yet I still feel hopeless, lost, and defeated. I've never, ever had that conversation, ever. And it's not because people in community don't get stuck, stranded, and surrounded. They do. They just have a small boat that's on their way to rescue them. You see, life is not the problem. Life is not our problem. Life is not a problem. Isolation's the problem. Isolation's the problem. We were made by divine community for divine community. Our natural setting is a small boat. That is where we could be seen and heard and valued. The writer of Hebrews continues like this. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Now, encourage here isn't just, hey, good job, way to go, you're great. It's this, the word in the original language means to appeal to, urge strongly, beg, implore. When we are really in each other's lives, when we, have the pers- when we have that kind of perspective on one another because we're purposely practicing community, what happens is that purposeful practice of community gives permission to each other to share their perspective on our life so that they can appeal to, urge, beg, and implore us to get off that beach, to move. I've seen this work miracles in my life. Early in college, I was doing okay. I was in school. Frankly, I was fairly happy. I had a girlfriend. Life was going okay. But I didn't have a lot of drive. I didn't have much direction. And a friend, someone who's in my small boat, took me to lunch, and he said, Mike, what are you doing? You're you're just just coasting. You're just floating. You're not doing anything. What are you doing with your life? And within two weeks, I broke up with my girlfriend, picked a major, and selected another college. Like, it totally changed my life direction. He encouraged me. He strongly urged me to reconsider just going through the motions. And then, I don't know, it must have been about 10 years later. I'm in my 30s, mid-30s. And, and lo and behold, I was coasting again. And, and once again, friends in my small boat who had earned my permission to share their perspective on me in my life. They, they changed everything for me. They challenged me like, this is what it was. Mike, instead of finding reasons to say no for one year, you have to say yes to every opportunity to speak. And one yes led to another. And by the end of that year, I found myself speaking to this tiny little community that didn't even have a name. This one. So you can blame them, okay? (laughs) I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing without the encouragement of my friends Brian, Jim, Mike, Pat, and John. We met together every week in a warehouse in Benton Harbor, and they challenged me there. They were in my small boat. And I'll bet if you look back on your most monumental moments of your life, the turning points of your life, 
you are almost certainly surrounded by a caring community. You were in a small boat of people who could share things with you. When we are practicing community, when we are living intentionally in this way of togetherness, when we give our permission, permission to our friends to share their perspective, it's always going to be encouraging even when they have something hard to say. And here's the problem. If there's no one in our life who has permission to say something hard to us, here's the problem with that. No one will say something hard to us. Think about that. No one will ever say anything hard to us. When's the last time someone said something hard to you? And if you can't think of one, we have to ask ourselves, do we think that's because there's nothing hard to be said? Or could it be that we're not in a small boat? Henry Cloud wrote a great book on the power of community. It's entitled, The Power of the Other. Listen to this. I want to shift the conversation from a focus only on you, i.e., here's how you can develop yourself, to a recognition that your own performance is either improved or diminished by the other people in your scenario. They hold power. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. Every great leader has opened up to someone who could meet a need, whatever that might have been. The range of human needs is broad, but the way to meet those needs is very narrow. It involves humbly and honestly embracing the need and reaching out to the power of the other. There is no other way. That's why this practice, this way of Jesus is so critical. It's such a gift he is trying to give us from divine community for divine community. The truth is Jesus cultivated a blue zone because even Jesus couldn't live life by himself. He jumped into a small boat with 12 other people. They're sometimes called the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples now, but it was 12 dudes, very imperfect, very limited people. And Jesus humbly let them into his real life. They knew his hopes and they knew his heartbreaks. And beyond that small boat, the Bible describes that Jesus put together a larger community. And the Bible calls them those who were around him. Okay? And, and in other words, Jesus lived in this way. Jesus lived his life in a small boat that was part of a fleet of small boats on a mission to rescue others just like them who were stuck, stranded, and surrounded. On purpose. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament of the Bible in the book of Daniel about three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we'll see who went to Sunday school when they were little. Not me, okay? And they were about to be thrown into the fire because they wouldn't worship the Babylonian gods. Left to themselves, who knows what would have happened, but they, each, they had each other. They were in the same small boat. So instead of panicking and distrusting God, er, and distrusting in the goodness of God, these men encouraged each other and found an incredible faith in God. 
in, in a real moment of crisis. And they told the king of Babylon, we will not worship your gods. Our God is with us and will save us. And if not, we will serve him anyways. You get this impression that they would do whatever is necessary for each other. And this is the part, I think the best part, of the story of Dunkirk. It's the part of the story that the movie left out. And I think you'll see why in a second. You see, the British military issued a call to help for the citizens to come to their help only after the British general in France refused to surrender. Stuck, stranded, and surrounded, he refused to surrender. The British high command told this general, all hope is lost, we can't save you. You're stuck, stranded, and surrounded. You must surrender to survive. And the general's reply was shared with the entire nation of Great Britain, and it electrified the country. Order to surrender, which he knew would save their lives, but lose not just the battle, but the entire war, because that was basically the entire British army that was going to be captured in 1940. The general responded with a quote from the Bible. This is what he said. We will not bow down. Our God is with us and will save us. And if not, and then he turned off the radio. <clears throat> Everyone knew what this meant. They were going to fight to the last man. And then this this miracle occurred. The British people, civilians, sailors, fishermen, weekend boaters, when they heard this, thousands of them got in their boats and set course for Dunkirk on the largest rescue mission in the history of the world. Years later, one writer tried to sum it up like this. The future of the entire world was secured by a massive fleet of small boats filled with rescued soldiers. This is what each of us and the entire world needs, a mobilized community of grace. We need to be on a small boat that's part of a fleet of small boats who will hear the SOS of the world and in God's name come to the rescue.
goodness. Look, we know, I'm sorry, it's Dunkirk Day, I'm choked up. <laughs> Life will surround us. We will at times feel stuck, stranded, and surrounded, and in the end, our hearts will surrender unless we are rescued by a fleet of small boats. And we get on one ourselves. We were made by divine community, for divine community, and in his grace, God has given us each other this way to live. And he's inviting us all to come on board and become part of a fleet of small boats on the biggest rescue mission in the history of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together. I pray, God, that you would help us to see opportunities in our life, to make opportunities in our life, to get on a small boat, whether or not we need to be rescued or whether or not we're storming a beach moving forward in our life. Both instances require a small boat. God, I pray that you'd help us to, to look for that, search for that, make that happen in our life. We thank you for the ways uh, that you have um, invited us to live. And pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, folks. We'll see you next week.